This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about Priscilla, the 2023 film written and directed by Sofia Coppola, based on the memoir by Priscilla Presley and Sandra Harmon. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. All right, so we are in week five of our Atur Autumn fall season. Last week, we talked about The Virgin Suicides by Sofia Coppola. That was a lot of fun. I'd never seen it before. Really interesting conversation, really interesting movie. And I really wasn't sure what to expect going into this week's Priscilla. Her latest film just came out. Yeah, and I'm really excited to, to talk about it with you guys. So let's dive in. So I hadn't seen any trailers. I barely knew what it was about. Uh, I'm not an Elvis follower, so I don't have a lot of built-in knowledge on the subject matter. I knew that he had a wife and that Priscilla Presley was the name of a person that I'd heard before. And Lisa Marie Presley was the daughter. And there's some Michael Jackson over there. And that's kind of was my end point. Anyway, so going into this movie, really wasn't sure what to expect. And overall, really, really enjoyed it. I think it's like, it's weird because I feel like it's similar to so many different, so many other movies, but also like singular somehow, like it almost falls into like some traps that other movies in this genre or in this kind of, you know, approach, you know, could fall into in a way that like wouldn't work for me, but it really deftly navigates a lot of things and yeah, I just found really interesting to learn about the history and see the story from this perspective of the Priscilla Presley character, but also just really admiring the storytelling that was happening. Like, I think there's a version of this script that could have been really, really bad, but this was like directed and told very well and just in a way that like made it way more I don't know, engaging and pleasant to be in this world, which given the subject matter of it is, you know, that's a challenge unto itself. So overall, I just really enjoyed this movie and the pacing of it and how it was shot and kind of the the approach that that it took and the performances are really good. And I think there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about. So I'm curious to hear you guys uh, what your thoughts were. We all saw it together, which was fun, but we didn't talk about it afterward. Um, Brian, what were your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I also enjoyed it. You know, it, it's funny. I just feel like 
uh, I remember watching On the Rocks, Sofia Coppola's last movie, and just afterwards thinking like, that was a movie I feel like I've seen a hundred times before, but it was just better. It was just better yeah. than that, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like, mm-hmm. that's how I feel about Priscilla. And like, I'm usually this sort of type of thing. There's just like the, here's a person and this, they're real and here's some stuff they did and the movie's over. It's like, I fine. Like I, it's not usually like a hugely exciting thing for me. Um, but Sofia Coppola, as we talked about in the last episode, like she just has a way of sort of making things feel a little brighter and a little smarter and a little, you know, just more like, oh yeah, this is actually what I want, like from a movie movie and not just, this is like, this could be like a made for TV, you know, like, like you said, a version of the script or version of the directing that's just like very flat and very like, here's the next thing that happened. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I also, I was, I was thinking about, um, Pablo Lorraine, uh, who made, um, Jackie and Spencer, um, both of which about these, you know, like real, real life women, um, from fairly recent history. And I think both of those are told in a really small amount of time, but they're like, they're not biopics in any way. They're just like this impressionistic, here's this sort of semi real, semi fictional character. And we're just kind of, kind of live with them and feel what they may have been feeling during this time in their life. And this movie feels certainly or it's certainly a longer period of time. It's like 10 years or, or more, but it, but it's so the scope is so small. It's so focused on, on just, it's like her in that house for like most of the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, so it kind of has that similar feeling to it. And, and I like, it's like, if, if you're going to make this kind of movie, I like this approach where it's just, it's, it's sort of impressionistic. It's sort of, it's not a mood in the way Lost in Translation and Virgin Suicides are, are, are a mood, but it's definitely bringing that Sofia Coppola-ness to, uh, to what otherwise could be, like we said, just kind of a flat movie. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that that phrase you used of like, I've seen this movie a million times before, this one was just better somehow. Yeah. Like, and that is, that's like really hard to do, uh, mm-hmm. which is really impressive. Um, Trisha, what about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I really liked this. Um Gosh, she's so good. You guys have touched a little bit on the pitfalls of both this genre of movie and this subject matter in particular, right? Like, listen, most of us saw Elvis. And even if you didn't see the Baz Luhrmann circus that is the movie Elvis, (laughs) you would probably associate Elvis's life and career with that kind of like highly kinetic, bright over the top, like really loud, um, you know, sort of in your face. Like he's, he's genuinely an American legend, like tall tale figure, right. Um, character that people play a lot all the time, uh, on stages all over the world. And you would expect any movie that's sort of about his life to be like big and loud and colorful and, um, you know, kind of this ride. Right. And this is none of those things. Um, it's the quiet Elvis movie. Uh, and, and I love that she did that. Like, you know, Priscilla Presley was this quiet person. Um, and this kind of woman is so often like made to stand in a corner, both in life and in history. Right. Like they're kind of a footnote or like their own separate chapter that's just sort of brushed across. And then, um, and I, I just love that this movie, uh, commits to her POV 
and commits to telling her story in sort of the most grounded way possible in a lot of ways. And uh, at the same time, I think it was uh, Alex in The Virgin Suicides. You said this movie is so um, so subjective, but it feels so objective where mm-hmm. it's like it's from only one POV and it's concealing information at every turn because we're only in one person's head. But at the same time, what happens seems like it's so not judge, judged by the filmmaker or the filmmaking. And I feel like that's what's happening here to a T. Like everything that happens to Priscilla and is done by her is just we're just watching it. But at the same time, she's the only person that we're with. And then, yeah, all of these wonderful details, all of this texture, all of this, like, um, I don't know, the way that the camera focuses and lingers on things and moves through things. And um, it's just pure Sofia Coppola at her absolute best. And I just really adored it. Um, And I'm glad that the story uh, was told in this way. I also think it's really thematically rich and I want to get into that. But yeah. Uh, very high marks from me. Thanks. Yeah, I agree. Okay, cool. And Alex, what about you? Yeah, second everything Trisha just said, um, the the non-judgmental aspect I think is so cool. Like Sofia Coppola and all of her movies I've seen just kind of captures this sense of um, there's, yeah, there's perspective, you're with people, you're seeing the world through their eyes, and yet somehow uh, the movie's never moralizing. The movie is never telling me in a really like you know ham-handed way how to feel about a situation i'm just presented with the situation and it's uncomfortable she's 14 this is kind of wild like i didn't realize this um and but the movie while it it casts uh kaylee spaney who can look 14 as well as in her 20s uh a brilliant casting and place me in the situations it never feels like it's it's a movie that is trying to get me to take a certain point of view about the situation. It's just presenting it to me. Um, fr- once again, from her perspective, in, and we get to see it through her eyes. So it's, yeah, Sofia Coppola is doing this, um, this kind of magical things in her movies where, just as you're saying, Trisha, it's both subjective and objective all at the same time the whole way through. Um, and and it's nice because it's like, you know, it, it, her movies don't... Um, they don't do the cheap Hollywood thing where where you get like usually a crazy catharsis and a really clear like that's the bad guy. That's the good guy. That's the overcoming the obstacle um, because of this complexity, because of the subjective point of view and the nonjudgmental filmmaking. Um, you're just left to kind of sit with reality and sit with this person's experience of reality and that's what you're given. Um, and so, yeah, I love that this movie follows in that lineage of the Virgin Suicides. And I also just loved being in the movie, um, even at moments where I was maybe detaching from the story a bit. It was just so beautiful. Like the cinematography was particularly gorgeous. Um, and I just, yeah, start to finish, just loved looking at the movie. Um, and that that goes a long way for for, for a film where like, you know, it, it for me, the, the biopic thing, um, it, it's it's kind of inescapable because life doesn't usually have a perfect three act structure. And so you can feel, you know, in the middle of this movie, okay, her and Elvis are kind of going South. There's a turning point here. Um, she's going to become more and more dissatisfied. And, and, and from that point on, you kind of know, and if you know, you know, about their life, you know where this is going to end. Uh, but 
even though it was that traditional biopic journey, I was still enjoying every scene because it was just so lovely to live in. So yeah, high marks for me as well. Yeah. If you're a fan of this podcast, then I've got something you'll definitely be interested in. Nebula is not just another streaming service. It's a platform designed by creators for creators. And it's a place where you can find some exclusive content from your favorite film analysts. For example, our friend Lindsay Ellis, who you may remember from one of our first episodes on Independence Day, has a bunch of Nebula exclusive videos. For example, Jurassic Park Turns 30, in which she breaks down the movie, the book, its impact on culture, and whether life truly finds a way. Or We Don't Talk About E.T., in which she examines the peculiar evolution of E.T.'s cultural legacy. Or How They Adapted Lord of the Rings, parentheses, The Good One. It's Lindsay Ellis diving into Lord of the Rings again. Go watch it. These are all things that you can only find on Nebula. Nebula subscribers are directly supporting creators like us. To sign up for Nebula, simply click the link in the show notes to get a 40% discount on annual Nebula plans. That's a little over just $2.50 a month. You'll get access to exclusive content and classes, ad-free episodes, all while supporting us directly. Win-win. Well, yeah, and what I like about, talk about the biopic aspect of it a little bit, I like that this movie wasn't super long. Like this movie yes. is 113 <laughs> yep. minutes. Two hours. And when it uh, needs to compress time and jump forward to the next important beat, it just does. And so like the the amount of time that we're skipping, I think kind of accelerates as you get toward the end. Yeah. And then the movie just gets out and it's like, and, and we're done. Like this decision was made. Very literally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just really appreciate that you know as we talked about in our killers of the flower moon episode like sometimes just duration can take a toll even if the content is great and so i love that this movie it felt like the the right amount of time for the subject better to say what it wanted to say and yeah i think that's two hour movies how about that i uh uh people should take notes those are good sometimes well and it has this wonderful um I'm going to describe this as being like a presence to it. But what I mean is when Priscilla is experiencing something, the movie is, is not rushing as you're pointing out, Michael, to the next beat. It gets us to the next beat, but it's also sitting in the present of the character, right? Like the Virgin Suicides has this, like we're looking back on this thing um, and it has sort of, yeah, we this dramatic question that we feel like, you know, is kind of pulling it through a plot per se. Um, like some events are going to happen. And so we're like sort of waiting for the events and the movie kind of has this sense of like, yeah, we're looking back on this and a built-in structure to it. But Priscilla is not like that. Like, there, Priscilla doesn't know what's going to happen. And the movie, even if the movie probably has to assume that the audience knows what's going to happen, it doesn't act like it, right? It's not, it doesn't have this sense of like, yeah, I guess I, the traditional like hanging a lantern on the structural beats of like, and then here's the you know, inciting incident. And here's the thing. It just keeps us so firmly in Priscilla's perspective of like, she doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, 
this is how it feels to her as the time is passing, or this is how it feels to her in this moment. And the movie never feels like it's just rushing through those moments to get to the next one or is being beholden to some kind of plot structure or some kind of like action thing, which can make it feel, you know, kind of lingery sometimes and can make you feel kind of unmoored, not knowing like maybe the dramatic question from moment to moment But I think that is kind of the point, or in some ways, again, the perspective is giving us that, um, I don't know, I think at least for me, it buys us the patience of like, I'm just sitting with Priscilla right now, thinking about what just happened, wondering what's going to happen, and just feeling my feelings about all of it. Right. Yeah, like, I really appreciated exactly what you said at the end there, that there was enough time to let me think about it. And, and figure out how I feel. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying also, Alex, about there's no, you know, moral judgment being thrust upon you and you're not being told what to think about what's happening by the filmmaking. And the filmmaking is also giving you time to think about that. And so it felt like I was, yeah, there's just a lot of this movie was happening inside of my head also. <laughs> and it mm-hmm. felt like perfectly paced to a thing would happen you know, story being told, and then it gives you a moment. And so now I'm thinking about this and trying to figure out how I feel about all these things. It holds that space for just long enough. And then we're back in to the next scene. And like that rhythm, like, I don't know that I've felt, I don't know that I've seen any other movie find that balance for me anyway, quite like this movie did. I think it's interesting to think about pacing um, in the first maybe quarter, third of the movie when she's first meeting Elvis. And I, I, I like how that almost feels more real time uh, because, you know, thinking about that teenage perspective, this insane thing happening, you know, the, the world's like superstar is interested in you. Just the intensity and the like momentousness of this thing happening, you would like time would slow down. Every moment, every scene you're sharing with this person would feel real time or like stretched out time. And and I, I think it was really cool how I, I was really engaged in the movie during those early scenes because I was with her. And I think part of why I was with her too is I mentioned the casting before. She was so good oh, at portraying yeah. mm-hmm. a 14-year-old. And Jacob Elordi was really well cast, I think, as, as this particular shade of Elvis as this both alluring but maybe also a little bit frightening older man, you know, and it's like 14 year old girl, 24 year old man. The movie, once again, isn't judging in these scenes, but just by the casting, you feel the intensity of the situation and you feel what she would be feeling. Um, And I just I love that we got to sit in that space for a long time. Mm -hmm. Their physicality, too, is important. You know, Kaylee Spaney is so tiny. And Priscilla mm-hmm. was such a petite woman. Right. Um, and, he, you know, Jacob Elordi is so tall. Um, and Elvis was, you know, much bigger than Priscilla. Um, and it, it kind of also creates that, yeah, like, you feel his presence and her perspective of what it would be like to be in that situation as a petite lady myself. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, that makes me think a little bit about just like getting into into sort of the character arc here. And, and I think the central theme of this movie um, w- during that first act, the part of me that just likes seeing, you know, sort of meet cutie type like burgeoning romance stuff like that. I was entertained, but I started thinking 
about a good, you know, 40 minutes in the movie, I was like, I don't really know who this character is yet. Uh, this character of Priscilla. I was like, oh, we haven't really learned much about who she is internally, not just like, you know, she's, a, you know, an army kid or whatever. Um, and then around the midpoint, I went, oh, that's the point. Uh, that 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 is very much on purpose. She doesn't really know who she is yet. So she just sort of lets herself become this chunk of clay to be molded by Elvis, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then the midpoint, I don't know if this movie has like a midpoint, but we've I think we've talked before about like sort of midpoint sequences where it's like a movie in the middle. It's sort of like you see like a run of things. And I think these three scenes are in a row, which is when he's like, oh, return that dress or whatever. She's like, fine, I'll return the dress, you know, like where she's like finally starting to like fight back a little bit. And then it's her in the classroom um, trying to cheat on the, her classmates test, you know, and she's like, hey, you want you want to come to one of Elsa's parties? Uh, you know, she does a little like motion. <laughs> to like, like, show me your paper. Right. Um, and then she asks Elvis not to come to her graduation and to wait outside, which is not like a big dramatic moment. It's just a moment of agency. It's a moment of her saying, this is what I would prefer for, for myself, you know. Um, and then all of those things. So, you know, I like a movie where where I say like everything first half is leading up to the midpoint and the second half is a result of the midpoint, right? And this very much feels like that kind of movie where then the second half of the movie is, okay, what does it look like when she actually knows what she wants and actually takes action on what she wants? And then the final scene of the movie is the the answer to that dramatic question. Yeah. And it was, yeah, I, it was nice to go on that journey, like in a, in a biopic also. Like, I think that's something that you know, right. a lot of biopics are sort of about you know, the rise, but then like the fall and the downfall and everything's terrible. And you're sort of watching, you know, the back half of this and it feels like a tragedy. There's obviously uh, a lot of struggle and not great things happening in Priscilla's life in the back half, but kind of like you're calling out, there's like a gaining of agency that's happening. And so there is still something that I'm like rooting for and on like board with of like, like seeing her grow and take control of her life and, by then she's at the pool and kind of flirting with the, you know, the yoga instructor or whatever, whoever that guy was like, karate karate. Guy. the karate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and that she's taking karate, like, yeah. All, yeah, all those things like, uh, yeah, it, like this movie again, could have been just so very different. And I think, you know, like, like we've been saying, there is a clear perspective, but it feels objective, but it doesn't feel emotionless with that objectivity like uh -huh. it could just be a lot of sour looking people feeling sour for a long long time but there are ups and downs and smiles and like all all of the emotion is there and again that's part of what this like crazy balancing act that i feel like this movie is doing is that it's giving me an emotional experience while not telling me how to feel and not judging but also presenting me with so much food for thought and experience all at once. Yeah. I can't remember at which point it was maybe in the LSD scene um, that I, it finally clicked for me that like, I was like, Oh, this movie is about addiction. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like the film is drawing these really interesting parallels between like Elvis's addiction to like, his painkillers and his philosophies and his like control manipulation, the fame of it all, all the things that ever Elvis was notoriously hooked on. Right. 
And then drawing parallels between that and Priscilla being kind of hooked on him. Right. And in the lifestyle that he has like given her. Um, And then, you know, the definition of addiction is like carrying on with something in spite of negative consequences. And that's what we see, right? Like she's getting the negative consequences almost from the jump, but she's also getting the fix or like the thing that she wants. That early scene where she flies out and he takes her to Vegas, right? And it's like that amazing montage. First of all, he gives her pills for the first time. Um, And, you know, we see the like gambling and the partying, um, and it's fa- it's fascinating that like in that sequence it's not really about for her it's not really about like the booze or the drugs or whatever it's about being near him like he himself is intoxicating his attention is intoxicating to her um and it becomes you know the sort of like whirlwind party sequence and then we see like her going back to her normal life you know that's the thing about like substances or whatever it is that people get hooked on it's that it makes your normal life it turns the volume down on your normal life and makes it more boring and more unendurable and then you're you just are like trying to get that high again and that's like exactly what we see from the very beginning when she meets Elvis it's just like something swooped in it made my boring life this amazing thing and everything that's not that is not something that I want anymore. And so she's just chasing that and chasing that and chasing that. Um, And so it's like, you know, it becomes this movie about her breaking that cycle and it's subtle, right? Like the beats in which she decides to not accept the negative consequences anymore or to find value in herself um, that make her less able to tolerate the verbal abuse, the control, like all of these things, those beats are subtle. And normally there's then like a fall, right? Like as with addiction, there's, she's back in the cycle again, putting herself back in that position, but with the benefit of like, I don't want to do this actually anymore. And so we, she gets stuck and stuck and stuck again, but we can see that each time she's like more resolved, right? Maybe in her and more sure of herself about what she does and doesn't want. Um, and that's beautiful. Like the, the theme is so subtle, but it's to me, once it clicked, I felt it was so strong in the filmmaking. Um, it's just lovely. It's interesting thinking about addiction because throughout the movie, you know, she is craving this attention and love from Elvis, you know, physical attention, whatever. And, and it's so it's an interesting, interesting exploration of, it's kind of like a, dynamic in a relationship or a marriage where one party begins to see the other as something else. They're not the object of desire. They are this other thing. You know, Elvis is seeing her as, um, I need to craft you into the perfect wife or to share my interests or he's kind of like arbitrary objectives for her, everything but what she actually wants, which, which is just kind of like pure attention and love. And, and he's seeking that elsewhere. And so she is like, she's that addict who can never quite get her fix because scene after scene after scene, she's really like throwing herself at him, trying to get mm-hmm. a reaction, trying to get that attention from him. And what he seems to be trying to do from her perspective in this movie is kind of make her perfect, make her into 
you know, reading the right philosophies, having the right hair, having the right look. Um, and I, just, I thought it was just really fascinating to, to look at a marital dynamic like that in such depth um, where, yeah, it's like it's, it's a very lonely position to be in where you're in a relationship where you all you want is that desire and attention. And it's the one thing you cannot get, even though they're here next to you all the time. Yeah. And it made me think about uh, the our What Lies Beneath podcast. One of our greatest, <laughs> if you listen to our What Lies Beneath. Obviously. Great uh, movie. Takes, yeah. yeah, incredible. <laughs> Film that. Um, but yeah, it, we were talking on that about how, um, sorry, spoilers for What Lies Beneath. <laughs> but if you like, saw the trailer, you know the whole movie. <laughs> truly. Um, but, you know, in that movie, that's also a portrait of a toxic marriage. And there are these scenes where we think we know how Harrison Ford's character is going to react to something. And he often doesn't react in the predictable way. Right. And that's what the abuse is. Right. It's like you keep the emotional abuse is keeping the other person off balance. So like sometimes when Priscilla asserts herself, Elvis is like, yeah, awesome. Or, you know, when she says she's like, yeah, fine, I'll return the dress. He's like, ha, 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 yeah, come on, come on, right? And is really kind of nice about it. And the same thing about her graduation, right? He's like, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. I'll stay outside, yeah. Um, there are these sort of kind and thoughtful and considered or even, yeah, humorous reactions that are benign um, that we get sometimes. And then other times he's like, get her on a plane out of here. And he pulls her suitcase down. And he throw, starts throwing her clothes on the floor, right? It's this way over or he throws a chair at her right it's this crazy overreaction not at all like the former Elvis that we knew or the Elvis in those other scenes and as an audience we're on that journey too where you know normally we praise character consistency in writing but when you're writing a movie about something like this that is emotionally abusive the other person is this moving target and elvis has to be this moving target in this movie that priscilla just doesn't know how to please no matter what she does right i think there's also a sense of you know i'm thinking of like the movie where you're like the scene in in movies where the you realize that the person is actually a bad guy or something like that. And like their whole body language changes and like, Oh good. I don't have to keep up that act anymore. And that's not what Elvis is in this movie, but I, but there is a little sense of all the nice stuff we're seeing, how much of that is him just like knowing how people want him to be right. Like talking to her parents and all that kind of stuff where it's almost like, he's like, he knows how to be like really turned on in that way. Um, so then when he's had enough or he doesn't have the energy or the desire to be turned on, then he's just like way, way extreme in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And going back to the casting of Jacob Elordi, like it might just be projecting from watching him in Euphoria, but there, there is like this interesting 
he's got this, you know, just like very classic good looks, but there's something just inherently menacing about him. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't feel good about him. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it's just really smart casting. Cause I think it's once again, in, in a power dynamic of a 10 year age gap, being a teenager, when you meet this guy, he's the most powerful, you know, superstar in the world. Like there is something dangerous about that and menacing of somebody holding that much power in a relationship. And I think it's just so smart to cast somebody that just inherently has that uneasy quality, because even if, you know, you don't want to believe this perspective 100 percent, just that dynamic is present in a, you know, 10 year age gap with a teenager. Um, and I think it's just really smart casting to make us feel that, you know, that power dynamic. You can just look at it on the screen and you can't deny just yeah. Google image Jacob Alordi and it looks like <laughs> it looks like the the like you know disturbing newspaper like shot where you're just like oh yeah he looks like someone who would do subject of articles. I hear he's a very nice guy. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but people look how they look. I describe this character type as upper class with a secret. <laughs> yeah. Totally. But like, I want to like know what the secret is. Of course you do. We all do. He's alluring. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like like both of them obviously like have that like, I just want to keep looking at you people. Oh, yeah. like, I mean, Kaylee Spaney is so gorgeous. Oh, It's yes. like insane so how photogenic she is in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It was wild realizing that, oh, wait, that's the person from Devs. This is a very different role than her role in Devs and just the other things, like, it feels like she's kind of chameleon-ish also, just totally. given the other things mm. that I've seen her in, which is just adds to that, like, mystery and allure. Yeah. And I think the way that this movie, like, focuses on her image and the way that she, right, takes such care with her appearance and, like, yeah, is constantly the the... It's like the first scene of the movie, right, is... The toenails, the paint, perfectly painted, you know, toenails on the thick pile of the rug at Graceland is the first shot of the movie. And then it's a whole scene of her like doing her eye makeup and taking great care. And there's lots of little sequences like that. We should talk about the montages in this movie because <laughs> whew, it is a movie for montages. <laughs> Again, the movie focuses a lot on the way that Priscilla cares for her appearance, that there's an understanding of her part that she needs to wear a certain like skin or embody a certain thing. Um, but without being, again, without it being like, it's totally against her will, right? There's, at some point in the middle of this movie, I was like, she's like a kidnapped princess in a castle. But she's not, right? She's not right. a kidnapped princess in a castle. She could do whatever she wants. Um, she could leave, you know? She could simply call her dad. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's all it would take. There is this... Uh, agency when we see her painting her own nails and doing her own eye makeup and like she is willingly doing all of this because it again is getting her close to this thing that she wants which is elvis's attention um and the lifestyle that it like bestows on her when they're walking out of that casino in vegas and they're both just looking insanely glamorous and like the best like early 60s fashion i've ever seen like it's it has this allure and appeal to it that we feel as the audience, right? There's the glamour to it. Um, it's very Mad Men in that way, where like you, it 
the movie is holding the glamour and the toxicity of all of it at the same time. You know, everybody, you watch Mad Men and it's not like a happy show about happy people living great lives. <laughs> no. But you also kind of want to be there. And but you definitely want to be there. Right. Like, I want that dress. I want to order that drink and sit at that cool bar and drive that car. Like, how many dudes wanted to be Don Draper? The most miserable person <laughs> ever on Super TV, depressed. Right? Like, but again, it's holding the glamour of it. Um, and this movie is great at that. Yeah. Well, and so it's interesting to kind of talk about, you know, the true story-ness of this, right? Like based on real characters that existed. We've talked before about like how much do you assume the audience knows how much do you clue people in? If you want to hear us be as angry as possible, there's our once upon a time in Hollywood episode where we <laughs> rail against the way that was done. And so, but it had me thinking about that in this movie where like, I don't know a ton of details about Elvis, but I know that like you can't exist in this world without knowing who Elvis is and that, you know, he was this unfathomable superstar. And, yeah, I guess I'm just curious to like what you guys make of how the how much the movie tells you or doesn't tell you about Elvis. Like if you had never never heard of Elvis, didn't know who that person was, there's a part of me that thinks you could still engage with this movie. Like I think there's enough signals that like this person, like there's enough buildup and the way he's treated when he comes on screen, the way he has his posse of like, you know, bros running around constantly, like <laughs> pretending to fight, like it's in like every six scene. of the That's, same person. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just like kind of the reverence when she meets him for the first time, like there's the movie does work to build up the, you know, the legend of Elvis, even within this story world, which I think it needs to do. So you understand, like you were saying there, Trisha, like she has agency. Why doesn't she leave? Well, because it's the biggest star in the world, because of all these things, you feel that. And so you can empathize with the situation and the difficulty of choice. But the movie doesn't like, yeah, again, it felt like a, an elegant, interesting choice where you know that Elvis is a big deal. You see glimpses of him performing, but from a very, like, it's this one angle, it's a silhouette, like, you know that it's there, um, but that's shown in an unconventional way that worked really, really well for me. I'm curious, yeah, what you guys made of how this movie treats the legend of Elvis. I feel like it, well, one thing I heard on NPR was that uh, they could not use uh, any Elvis songs in the movie because the estate would not let them. Oh, um, it was not authorized by the Elvis estate. They uh, did use a couple, but it was like instr like instrumental Love Me Tender and like right. a couple, yeah. They couldn't, they couldn't use like the official Elvis recordings. But I think that worked in a really interesting way because it took the attention off of, this is a traditional kind of Elvis, you know, it's not, it's not Elvis, the 2022 film by Vals Lerman, um, which is the traditional like big Elvis story, which I loved and I loved all the music in it and it was great. But this movie is not about that. It's about this woman and her perspective and the music and the performances aren't what concern her. She's that's not what she's kind of in turmoil about. It's about this man in their kind of private domestic life and what she wants from him. Um, so I really liked that the movie 
had that constraint and just then had to keep us firmly in her kind of like domestic prison that she was in and and what she was lacking and needed in her relationship. Listen, Sophia Coppola is not going to struggle to find the right song. That's right. one thing we know about She's her. She still found great music for the whole movie. Yeah. Oh, yes. The, the Dolly Parton, um, I Will Always Love You at the oh, end. Yeah. Like, so, so perfect. Good, yeah. perfect. So perfect. Um, yeah, you know, you're making me think of a couple things. Um, and one of which is, I think, your direct question about Elvis. And I think it was on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where I said, you look at Inglorious Bastards, if you've never heard of a Nazi before, that movie tells you very quickly these are bad people, right? Whereas Once Upon a Time in Hollywood doesn't really give you the information you need if you've never heard of, of the Manson family. Um, and I feel like this movie does what I would want if I had never heard of Elvis. It's like, you know very quickly this guy's a big deal. And he, so it's like this movie could be a totally fictional story and I wouldn't be confused by who right. this character was, right? Um, but then there's the sort of like, the, the the movie versus reality of it all, which I think you were touching on a little bit, Michael, um, where I just I'm all, I always struggle with just like we're going to tell this person's story because their story is worth telling. But we're going to tell this version of it. We're going to change this thing and we're going to rearrange this thing. Right. And I know, obviously, that's how drama works. You know, you have to make a structure. You have to make a movie feel like a movie and that kind of stuff. Um, so I understand that some of that has to happen. But then also it's everything is being told from someone's point of view, right? So someone is saying, here's my story. And then someone is, you know, even if you watch a documentary, it's like the people being interviewed are telling their version of the story. The people cutting the documentary are including the facts they want to include, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I, there is something where it's like, in reality, you know, she did more than flirt with the karate instructor. Like, like she she had multiple affairs. Elvis did way more than be a little un not gentle with her in in that you know really horrifying scene. Like, and and I'm kind of like I feel like that movie would be maybe more interesting. Like, I, I'm like if these things happen, like let's let's talk about it. Like, let's really see that. You know, um, so there's a little thing that, that frustrates me there with with these biopics where it's just like, yeah, we're going to tell this person's side of the story, which means we're not going to include any of this stuff that maybe wouldn't make them look great. All that being said, I also look at a movie as a standalone thing. And the characters in that movie are the characters in that movie. And that is the story being told to me. Um, so like when I was talking about Spencer or Jackie, like that very much feels like let's take this like impression of a person and then make a story about this character. Um, I always think of social network where it's like, I forget that Mark Zuckerberg's a real person when I watch that movie, like that movie in right. no way is trying to be like, look, this is who this person is. It's just like, no, this is a, a, a sort of idea of a character that we're going to build this movie around. Um, so I think as far as all of that goes, it's like, I like, I like this movie in that it just told me who these characters were and then made a movie with those characters. Right. So I have my meta big macro biopic problems. So you sort of like don't bother me as much with the movie like this because it's very clearly just doing this movie is doing its own thing rather than being like, we have to tell you this really important story about this, this thing that happened. But then we're going to change a whole bunch of stuff to make it a better movie, which is like, well, then don't do it. The end. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's like, yeah, it's almost like the best choice in some ways is to do what you were saying, Brian, which is. Ultimately, this we can never make a movie about 
exactly what happened to anybody because mm-hmm. if we weren't there, we don't know, you know, and, right. and especially like inside of domestic life in a relationship between people, it's all subjective and, you know, reality feels different to different people. You know, somebody can feel threatened and like being abused and the other person doesn't even realize, you know, that that's what was happening you know, on their end. So it's like, you know, we can never really accurately represent reality if if we're telling stories about human characters and their emotions and their emotional journeys. Um, so I think there is a certain point where it's like, yeah, you know, the best we can hope for with the biopic is this is a really fascinating character inspired by a real person. And we're going to make a movie starring that character, but we mm-hmm. can never really know the reality. And, yeah. and it's fun to see different movies about Elvis coming coming out so close to each other because yeah, it's like back to back. I just watched the Baz Luhrmann Elvis and Priscilla Presley in that movie is feels very one dimensional. I I don't really have much access to her interiors. Um, Their relationship seems seems very like not problematic up until like near the end when, when she's kind of mad about his drug addiction. Um, So it's just, it's just, it's fascinating to see just right there. Oh, two movies about the same two people. Um, completely different ideas about what what their interiors are and what's going on. Yeah. I have a friend who's a history teacher and like at the beginning of every year, he reminds students like, as a reminder, history is stories. The stories are told by the winners, the owners, and those who have power and the losers in history, their stories are told for them or forgotten. And so like, you know, we, we treat history like it's math. It's not. <laughs> it's very much not. It's very much just stories. And having the movie Elvis and the movie Priscilla come out very close to each other in time. And they're both, you know, they are both fiction and neither one is acting like they're a documentary or something. But nonetheless, it's a very stark example of this exact thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like Elvis got to tell his own story very loudly for a very long time. Well, he died, but lots of people had their image of Elvis that was like, you know, projected for a very long time, um, a certain kind of image of him. And Priscilla's story was told for her or forgotten for a lot of the time. (laughs) And then you have this. She is actually also like in history and in life. She's also still a tremendously powerful and influential person who now is telling her own version of the story. And you can just weigh that along with everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, again, just what I appreciate so much about this movie is that it, it walks that line for me of, I feel like I've, it's told a different perspective and shown a different, you know, view of things that have happened, which is great and important. And I can now hold that in my brain with any other pieces of information. And at the same time, it's doing, as we're saying, you know, this is a story about characters. And at the end of the day, I'm I feel like the movie isn't even as obsessed with like the facts of what happened. Like right. this doesn't feel like a checklist right. movie of like, we're gonna recreate all the coolest moments and you're gonna that's on on your your Elvis Priscilla bingo card. Look, we did it, we did it. I feel like instead it it captures like a truth about this experience and makes me ponder and consider what, you know, someone like Priscilla, what their life could have been, what it would be like to be a 14 year old, be swept up to go on this journey 
And I feel like that that truth of the human experience of it is makes it universal and makes it more interesting and, and powerful to me. And I really appreciate how difficult that must be to to do with material like this. Awesome. Well, why don't we move to lessons? So what lessons are we going to take away from Priscilla? Alex, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I think my lesson is restraint. And I'm often not one for restraint. I like, I do like big movies. I like big music and movies. I, I mean, I love Elvis. I, lo- I like Elvis. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I, I, I was telling uh, off mic, I was talking about, um, I feel like it has, it's been since Moulin Rouge since I've seen a Baz Luhrmann quite like this. And uh, watching Elvis was such a thrill uh, because it had that almost like also like an Edgar Wright feel of mm. just, Every transition, every moment was so immaculately executed. Music throughout, just like keeping me like grooving in this movie, and, and, and that's I love that. That's a, that's I love going to a movie theater and having that kind of experience. But for this type of story, I, I you know, there, there's movies that I often feel uh, kind of annoyed by when they're when they're restrained not for a purpose but rather of like this is the default of what you do because we are an indie gritty movie and so we will be as plain and as unadorned as possible uh and look how like honest that is but i feel nothing so so i don't i'm not impressed this movie i think you know and a lot of sofia coppola's movies we've been talking about all these things about how there's this kind of objectivity to them and i think the restraint here is you know, presenting us with the right cast, with the right situations to let us feel things about it. Like, like we bring the feeling, we bring our emotions and our interpretation uh, to it. The movie's not putting it on us. And one example of that was, you know, I think it's the first time she goes to Graceland um, and she sleeps over with him and she gives, he gives her the sleeping pills and, and then she wakes up and finds out it's been two days mm-hmm. and she's been passed out. And there was an audible kind of like murmur through the theater of, you know, teenage girl. I don't know if she was still 14 in that moment in the movie. Teenage girl flies out to rich man's house, is given pill and wakes up two days later. The movie doesn't put horrifying music on you. It doesn't it doesn't do anything dramatic with that fact. It's just the kind of heaviness and the like seriousness of that reality sets in and like maybe everything was fine. Maybe I was a perfectly honorable man and everything was good. Grandma was there. Um, but I just appreciate how matter of fact and restrained moments like that were where we just feel it all in ourselves. We bring our concerns and our interpretations. The movie is not pushing it on us. Um, so, yeah, I think this movie is a great example of where restraint is doing something as opposed to being kind of a default indie movie baseline. Yeah. Yeah. Very much agree with that. Brian, what's your lesson? Um, and we talked about the Virgin Suicides, you know, how that's an interesting study in POV and how looking at one thing through the lens of multiple characters can tell different stories, examine different themes, different takes on the same theme and that kind of stuff. Um, and then I think Priscilla is a great example of a study in exactly one POV, um, where it's not only is the movie mostly told from her POV, there, I think there's like a couple shots where there are people in the room before she walks in, or there's like the one shot of Elvis in the, in the hotel room, um, with the rando, you know, but for the most oh, yeah. part, it's like entirely just told from her, from, through her eyes. Um, 
But then like the shot composition and the editing and the directing, it's like the camera is often at her height, which means we're looking at Elvis's belly button. Um, and then like the, the camera sometimes will just like not cut away from her. So we're just seeing her reaction to what someone else is saying. The, the first time I noticed it was, I think, when we first meet her parents, which I think is when she's asking to go to the to the party in the first place. It's like the shot is kind of the side slash back of her dad's head and then her mom and and Priscilla and like it's all one take and it's the first time we're even seeing her dad and we don't even really see his face because that's not what matters what matters is her and her reaction and her finding out that she's not going to not be able to go or you know whatever um and uh and yeah I, I think it just keeps the story super focused and it also keeps the scope really focused uh whereas like if we were following Elvis doing these big bombastic concerts and having these affairs. Like, I think it would just be like, we'd get really distracted. And instead it is kind of you know, a little bit without what Alex was saying about the restraint here is that we are with her the whole time and we're seeing newspaper headlines and we're hearing rumors and it just, it really basically what we've been touching on for most of the episode, it's just this movie forces us to be in her headspace by literally saying like if she doesn't leave the house then you're not leaving the house audience member you know and like that's that's where you're gonna feel like you are and and i just think it's such a cool especially looking at virgin suicides in this back to back just the like meandering pov where we have like the two different narrators who aren't the sort of main characters you know like what's going on and what did this person think about this and this movie is just boom here is this movie is called priscilla that's who we're with that's why it's under two hours. It's not going all over the place, doing all this kind of stuff. It is just laser focused on her. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very much appreciate the focus. As you were talking, there was also kind of reminded of Portrait of a Lady on Fire as another movie mm. that just like knows what it's about. And the filmmaking yep. is pointed directly at that. And like that. Yeah. Talk about how much we love that movie. Also, I've been picturing in my head, you know, there's like mini games and video games, or I think there's like a, like a medical test where you blow into a tube and you have to like hold the ball up and you blow and then the ball there's a little ball in the tube and you have to get it to levitate it exactly the right is this in video games or in real life it's both so I'm, i started video games and then it's so to clarify what the hell are you talking about <laughs> right so <laughs> so those games where you have to do an action that's really hard to keep something in exactly a oh. tiny right, zone, right. like the sweet okay. spot of like, can't yeah. go too high, can't go too low. You got to keep it right there. Like your blood sugar. <laughs> right. Or your blood sugar. The most fun game that you can play yeah. of, of this. I feel like this movie is doing that like throughout, basically. It's just somehow yeah. finding yeah. the sweet spot and holding it right there, which is very impressive. Yes. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah. Uh, in our last conversation about virgin suicides, I talked about the details and how when you're young or like you're in adolescence, you're like hyper focused on details. And I was so reminded of that in this movie um, where, you know, there's this sense that Priscilla is convinced that if she can just wear the right nail polish or wear her hair exactly the right way or sit. I love the scene where she's like posing at, on the couches at Graceland. Like, oh, this is maybe how I should sit this way. I'll cross my legs just a certain way. Um, you know, there, there's almost this sense of like the fixation on these tiny details is so important to young people. Um, and 
the observation of them here is is brilliant because Sofia Coppola's movies are often, and this movie very much is about uh, young women and what the world like places on young women and how and sort of like the pressures that young women just absorb from a very young age to be exactly something. Um, and so, you know, we, I, I touched on earlier, like her fixation on her appearance, but everything in this movie is focused on tiny details like that. Um, and I just, I love it. Like the montages are brilliant. The production design is incredible. The costume design is amazing. Right. Hair and makeup is incredible. Um, and as the film goes along, you know, we, we, ha uh, we mentioned earlier that the time jumps get bigger, but they're easy to track because the details are trackable, right? The way that Priscilla looks has been so firmly established in the text of the movie by what is focused on, um, by what the frames are focused on. And so like when, you know, in the like late sixties, early seventies or whatever, when Priscilla is wearing her hair down at that point and like it's, it's natural color again. And the like, makeup is more subdued on her face. I'm starting to understand that she's breaking away from Elvis's influence. Right. Like, it's funny. There's this scene where Elvis, you know, he tells her to return the dress and like, you got to stay away from prints. Like this thing, when I see her wearing a printed dress later with strong print on it, that's doing storytelling because mm -hmm. it's communicating directly with the text of what was established earlier about the character's journey and Elvis's control over her. And so, you know, this like idea that the devil's in the details is absolutely true, not just in like the background production design or the, you know, the, the shirt that somebody's wearing over there, but in actually the storytelling, again, these things are really valuable tools that you can use to put us in a character's headspace. Um, and, and to help us track, not just where they are in time logistically, but where they are on their emotional journey. And I think this movie is so brilliant. I hope it gets like all the Oscar nominations for costume and hair makeup. It's got to get hair makeup, right? Like yeah. it's got to get a hair makeup like nomination. It so deserves it. It's just beautifully done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of sort of goes into what I want to talk about is so when I was listening to Trisha, you talk about that Vegas sequence where, you know, it's kind of this montage. He takes her to Vegas. And that was a standout scene because my the cynical part of my brain was like, all right, here we go. We're going to do this sequence where she is like going to get obsessed with oh, it's the money and the lifestyle. Like I've seen this like montage a million times, but it doesn't do the, con the conventional obvious thing. It like you pointed out knows what the scene is about. Like, it's not that this character is addicted to the money or this or that necessarily. She's addicted to Elvis. Like, it, there's a more specific pointed story that's being told. And yeah, it just made me appreciate, again, like the, the director's job is to know what the scene is about and what the story is about. Like, what is it about about? 
like about, 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 and then make the scene, <laughs> use the tools at your disposal, like you're just talking about, like hair, makeup, frame, all, all these different things, have it pointed at what the thing is actually about. And I think it's easy to take for granted uh, an approach to a scene or just know the the conventional language for a certain sequence or you know, if you were handed the script, you could read that scene and be like, oh, we'll do it like, do it the Marty Scorsese way. It'll be like Goodfellas. It'll be whiz bang and blah, blah, blah. But that might not be pointed at what the actual thing is about. And I feel like start to finish, this movie knows what it's about and is doing it really, really well. Yeah. And I find that very inspiring. Yes. What else have you guys been watching recently? <laughs> Alex, what have you been watching recently? So in October, AMC was doing a partnership with A24, showing off some of their horror movies in theaters. Um, and so I went and saw X for the first time uh, at, in a theater. Oh. Uh, it's a movie starring uh, Mia Goth, Jenna Ortega, directed by Ty West. And it was, if, you, I mean, if you're a horror fan, it is, it is a fun, weird, freaky, like raunchy 1970s era uh, horror movie. And I had a lot of fun. Um, so and then I, Mia Goth is being talked about right now as like our new scream queen. Uh, and I, I get it. She's she's great. She's got a great face for horror. She's got a really interesting look. And I now really want to watch the prequel to the movie called Pearl, which which also stars her. She's also going to be and her face. There's there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. You, you'll know what I mean when you, you see the last shot of the movie. It's when just, I see yep, Pearl, okay, that's her face. Yep. Yeah, her face is good for for doing things. Uh, and then she's going to be in a sequel to X called Maxine. So it's going to be this whole trilogy. Um, but I, I see what they're doing, and it's very interesting, and it's and it's fun. So if you're into fun A24 horror movies, X is probably your jam. Nice. Great. All right. Brian, what about you? <laughs> I went to a screening of a documentary uh, called Small Town Strong, uh, which was uh, produced and directed by a couple friends of mine. Um, so I went to support them and they were in town um, uh, showing it at USC um, to some to some students there. And I got to go. But it's about a uh, an army veteran named Dale King who opened a gym in Portsmouth, Ohio. And he started helping victims of the opioid crisis uh, rehabilitate through like fitness and just the community of like we're going to the gym every day and we're working out together and like we're, you know, just just being being together, being a family. Right. Um, and then he it's just like this very entrepreneurial kind of story where he and a couple of his like partners that he's with, they just start like starting businesses and, and doing things like during COVID, there's a kettlebell crisis and they're like let's go talk to the people at the foundry down the street. And they go to the foundry and they're like, can you guys make kettlebells? And they're like, sure. And like, great. So they just like got the foundry, the local foundry to make kettlebells. And they started selling them. That was like another business that they started. And then of course they are hiring these people who are going through this, you know, recovery. They're hiring them to be part of these businesses. So now they're getting an income and they're getting something to focus on and everything. So it's like really, just really beautiful, really lovely story. Um, I think they spent four years um, uh, making it. So, you know, things, like like in any interesting doc, things happen along the way and th that were not expected by the filmmakers and stuff, and that that just adds to the to the weight of the story in, in really in really poignant ways. Um, so yeah, really lovely story. Proud to to support my friends and 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 to shout it out on the podcast. 
So it's called Small Town Strong and it's on iTunes and Apple TV and all the places. So check it out. Nice. Nice. Very cool. Awesome. Okay. Trisha, what about you? Uh, I checked out a new Netflix movie that you guys might have seen or at least heard of called Reptile. Um, And it's uh, Benicio Del Toro, Justin Timberlake, Alicia Silverstone, and Francis Fisher. And I know. I know. It's a stacked (laughs) cast. I've like I've been missing Justin Timberlake movies. Like I like him in movies. Um, so I was for sure going to watch this. Uh, and it's directed by um, a music video director, Grant Singer. Uh, anyway, it, it's like this mystery. It, it's basically, you know, just a modern, blandly colored, really moody, whodunit kind of uh, um the world is very bleak, certainly a descendant of true detective and, and things of that ilk um, mystery. But I actually really dug it. Like, it, it, I don't know the way it's shot. It's so full of like menace and suspense in um, obvious ways. But like it, it has like a lot of really suspenseful music in it uh, in scenes that like don't become anything. But you're just like, they're walking up to the house. They're walking up to the (laughs) house. And they're in the house. Here they are. Oh, they're talking. Like (laughs) and like that's all the scene is. But the music is like, ooh. Um, I love it. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) It was directed Um, by a (laughs) four-year-old. Listen, I mean, if here's the thing. If you're gonna make a a suspense detective thriller now like you have to like knock us off balance in different ways like we're too savvy of moviegoers right right? and so this movie just feels like it's we're gonna mess with you and uh it does it messes with you um Benicio Del Toro is the detective Justin Timberlake ends up being like sort of the prime suspect uh and Francis Fisher is his mom and Alicia Silverstone is Benicio Del Toro's wife um and she's amazing in it as well she's amazing in it as well so anyway uh I really dug it it was a it was a really fun watch I watched it in one sitting wow I almost never watch movies in one sitting anymore so uh (laughs) strong recommend from me Reptile it's on your Netflix fascinating nice no cool there are very few reptiles in it, actually. I just want to say yeah. that. If you're hoping for a movie about <laughs> like snakes and alligators and turtles, yeah. this is not your movie. It sounds like a BBC doc. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's, it's not that. And Justin Timberlake could maybe like narrate a BBC like wildlife doc. <laughs> right, pops Why? About it. No. Just throw sure. us off balance. We've seen too many, as Trish was saying. Yeah, only, yeah. But only if he like improv narrates it. <laughs> you know, just sort, of, just sort of like, oh, look at these guys. They're like walking around. They look cool. I, 100% would watch. Michael? Uh, so I watched a 1992 musical crime comedy called Sister Act recently. Hey! Uh, Alex and I and a couple other friends randomly watched Sister Act. And I was obviously obsessed with Sister Act 2 as a child. And I watched that sure. many, many times. And my memory of the original Sister Act was kind of fuzzy, but was sort of a like... I don't really want to do like Sister Act 2 is the real one. It's kind of like, <laughs> like as a kid, like Return of the Jedi Star. is like the fun Star Wars to watch. You're sort of like, ugh, okay, yeah, Empire, whatever. 
Sister Act is the Empire Strikes Back of that little duology. Like, Sister Act is really good. It's a really good movie. (laughs) I was like blown away. Brian's looking it up, but I'll save you. I recommended it on our Whiplash podcast because I had recently rewatched it at that time also. But I mean, welcome, welcome to like those of us rediscovering. Yes, the Sister Act legacy. Yeah, I was yeah, like I said, I was blown away. It's like really well structured. It tells its story really nicely. Like I feel like it has a really cool like midpoint turn that's like, you know, the sort of same structure as like a Jurassic Park where the thing that you think most of the movie <laughs> is actually it's just the second half and the first half is all about the build up to it. Like, I don't know. I was like so pumped. Uh, it's it. like the best musical number in the whole movie is the midpoint scene right. yeah. and, it's, like, and it's so and it's so epic and so well done and so like joyful it's yeah it's yeah great. yeah it's joyful joyful, joyful. joyful. yep there Yay. it is we did it uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway but it's really and it made me like miss the days when like a movie like that could be made like just could exist yeah. and like that i don't know it's something special so go watch sister act everybody i don't I don't think you'll regret it. It's really I'm, I'm really hoping this gets us like one micro step closer to Michael being open to talking about ghosts. Because if just if you want another, we also early the 90s. same film club. We're Hell solely yeah. watching like '90s movies. We also watched Ghost. I also watched <gasps> Ghost. It's on my <gasps> list of movies to talk about on here. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> oh my god, we got to talk about Ghost. <laughs> no, I'm so excited. We got to talk about Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so much. <laughs> the pottery scene is like way at the beginning. There's so much buildup about it. It's like, it's just, anyway, anyway, yeah, we'll talk about ghosts sometime. But Sister Act, really, really good. Whoopi, Whoopi, Whoopi's great. Also, yeah. it's like she's really funny. It's, oh my god, so great. She's an EGOT winner, man. I know. She's one of like only twelve EGOT winners EGOTs. out there. Yeah, yeah. Well deserved. Atticus or a Tony away. I'm, I'm just, I'm waiting. Oh, it's They'll gonna happen. <laughs> They're gonna do a huh. musical. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Maybe Fincher and them could do a a play Broadway, a Broadway show play. There was going to be a Fight Club musical uh-huh. um, that, yeah, that that they were all going to be involved in. Julie Taymor was going to direct it. Anyway, this is been our episode on Priscilla. Um, <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Right. Well. So speaking of Fincher, so next week, as we go into week six of our uh, tour autumn, we will be doing the the second half of the Fincher analysis. So we began all of this with seven. So next week, we'll be talking about The Killer, the new David Fincher film that has just come out. And then uh, after that, as a reminder, we'll be rolling into the Ridley Scott portion, starting, of course, with Prometheus. Uh, a patron exclusive <laughs> episode on Prometheus, <laughs> which I'm so excited about. Uh, and then Napoleon, which I'm also really excited about. The trailer looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So I hope, and we're going to talk about Ridley Scott's past history with trailers and how much they <laughs> measure up to the actual film. We'll get into all of that in Prometheus. The last well. duel was really good, so I have a lot of hope. It's really good. Hey. Yeah. I also, when I watched the Napoleon trailer, I still am not convinced that's a real movie. <laughs> like Joaquin yeah. Phoenix as Napoleon in a really yeah. like, sure. It feels like a movie trailer that would be in another movie <laughs> or like a fake movie yeah. in that reality. Like they got Joaquin Phoenix to do a cameo yes, just correct. for this fake trailer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's like in a comedy somewhere. Someone's watching TV and they're watching the like Napoleon trailer. Wow. That's a hundred percent correct. Yeah. Uh, can't wait. 
Um, anyway, but yes, this has been our conversation about Priscilla. Uh, thank you to all the patrons for making this show possible. If you want to help us make more episodes, listen to our Killers of the Flower Moon episode and be ready to listen to our Prometheus episode, head over to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon to support the show. Uh, thank you to our producer, Vince Major, our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I'm joined today by Trisha Aran, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we'll see you in the next episode for our discussion of The Killer. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.